Co. You are listening to Native Stories. Native Stories exist to share the voices of those connected to the land. Our vision is to create a resource for Pilina or connection to place, and Native Stories aims to activate Indigenous perspectives. So, aloha mai kako, uva onania loko inoa no papukulea maiao, no ao ma kapule oahu. Um, hello everyone, my name is Nania Lo and I come from Papakulea, um, now residing in Kapule on Oahu in the White Kingdom. And mahalo nui for joining us on another episode of Native Stories. Today we have Daphne Little Bear who is from Tamaya Santa Ana Pueblo and is a descendant of the Muskoki, Yuchi and Shawnee Nations. Daphne resides with the within the Pueblo with her family and two dogs. Music and dancing provide so much joy and healing to Daphne, and she engages in many of the cultural dances of her communities. Daphne is currently completing her doctoral degree at Arizona State University, studying social justice education, education policy, and indigenous education. The current working title of her dissertation is Affirming the Educational Sovereignty of Santa Ana Pueblo, the Intersections Community-Based Education, Western Schooling, and Tribal Citizenship. Daphne is the research director at the American Indian Higher Education. Daphne is the research director of the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, serving tribal colleges and universities. Daphne has had the opportunity to work in the education field for over 10 years with various organizations, and she believes and advocates um, as a champion of educational sovereignty for tribal nations. So, aloha, Daphne. Mahalo for coming on Native Stories. Hello, everyone. Um, I just want to greet you all in my language as well. Kwetsana sai hopa, hinkotai siyase kiami hanosuta ko moshome hanosuta. Yeah, good morning, good afternoon, greetings, everyone. I just introduced myself in our ancestral language of Karis here in um, Tamaya, which is also Santa Ana Pueblo. Yes, mahalo. I love it. I love when we have people who come on and they like share in their native tongue, um, their little, their introduction. So I actually met Daphne at um, NISA last year in Aotearoa or New Zealand. Um, so NISA stands for Native American Indigenous Studies Association and they have um, a big conference every, I think it's three years. And so it's just amazing. And last year, I feel like Aotearoa and the Māori, um, our Māori cousins like outdid themselves in hosting and also the panel discussions and everything that was happening there was amazing and I'm so happy that I was able to meet Daphne there and that we've been able to keep in contact. Yeah I think NASA was such a huge um, conference last year. I had the opportunity of attending a few years. My first time was actually in 2008. I think it was the second year of the conference so to see how much it's grown, it was really amazing and how many Indigenous scholars are doing such amazing work, not just within the university system, but also community-based. So it's always good to exchange ideas and learn from each other and and develop new um, relationships and kinships with um, other Indigenous people globally. So I'm really happy we met. I know. Yeah, it was pretty life-changing for me. I The first NISA I went to was actually in the Hawaiian Kingdom. I think it was in 2012. But, yeah, from seeing it grow to the magnitude that it is, it, it's, it's been amazing. And when they came here in 2012, it was like there was, like, Indigenous and Native people who came who – didn't even speak English at all. And they were actually like one of some of the last elders in their community. Um, And they had like an interpreter come and they were like walking around and talking. And it was just like amazing seeing that. (laughs) For sure. I think just having elders at any kind of convening is always special, especially when they're able to, you know, share their lifelong experience and also um, that they're continuing to even learn at their, you know, at their age, because it it just never ends. 
learning mm. really never really ends for us. Um, I know it's inspirational too, because when I saw that or like, yeah, going to different gatherings, especially outside of my culture um, and seeing like yeah, elders come and just represent for themselves and also represent for their communities. It's inspiring that it makes me want to be, you know, when I get to that age to just keep perpetuating and sharing my spring of knowledge to everyone as well. Yeah. Can you share a little bit more about where these places are, I guess, in, you know, how the mapping is in quote unquote America today? Yeah. So my parents actually met at Askell um, Tribal College, which is in Kansas. So that's pretty much where my origin begins. Um, People refer to me as a Haskell rascal. Um, So my dad is Muskogee Creek and Shawnee from Oklahoma, and my mom is from Santa Ana Pueblo, which is Samaya here in New Mexico. And I was actually born in uh, Muskogee Territory in Oklahoma. Um, And my parents decided to move to New Mexico Uh, My mom wanted to be closer to her homeland, and my dad agreed to move. So um, we ended up moving back here to New Mexico, um, and I ended up being raised um, off and on the Pueblo. So um, growing up here in the Pueblo with my my, um, family, mostly my grandma, and then off the Pueblo because um, my parents were not, um, my dad was actually not from one of the pueblos so there, there's a whole nother kind of system there so um i was also raised in albuquerque um, which is a nearing city which we refer to as tiwa territory now yes i actually just got introduced to those whole tribal dynamics of sometimes if you know your parents if one isn't the other and they don't declare then they're they don't have certain rights or to live in certain places, which I thought was very interesting. Yes, it, it is interesting. And it kind of stems to how we form kinships um, officially through tribal protocols. But also there's also a layer of um, federal, um, federal influence with um, tribal enrollment and blood quantum. So it's a very complicated, complicated history, complicated relationships. Um, but through it all, you know, I, I really didn't feel the pressure to, um, identify as what, uh, as what, like identify as Pueblo or identify as Creek or Shawnee or Yuchi. I was just always brought up knowing that I was, um, you know, a part of all of these communities. Um, but I do make my home here in Santa Ana Pueblo and I do, you know, remain connected with my um, paternal family. My dad is, you know, no longer here. He's passed. But, you know, being raised by him or being in his life, I did learn a lot about, you know, who he was as a Creek man, our own Yuchi person and Shawnee. Um, But also it was, you know, it's not always easy, but somehow my parents were able to help me balance what that meant and how I carry it, and how my daughter, you know, my daughter's very intertribal too. So I have a daughter who's, um, you know, a young adult, and she's from multiple tribes, just like I am, multiple pueblos, multiple tribes, like I am. And, um, but again, we aspire, or we make our home here in Santana Pueblo. Are your people from um, what is now called New Mexico? Um. So yes, our our um, ancestral lands are within the um, colonial state of New Mexico. Um, so us as a community, people call us Pueblo Natives, Pueblo Indians, or Pueblo people, but in actuality, Pueblo is really a Spanish term. So here within my community, we refer to ourselves as Tamayame. Um, in, refer- in referring to our most related um, other, because tr- there's 19 pueblos here in New Mexico. There's 19 pueblos, there's one in Texas, and then there's one in Arizona. So um, even though it's a Spanish term, we call ourselves Tamayama here in Santa Ana Pueblo because that's our name. 
but when we're referring, we have actual references to how we refer to other Pueblo people. But if you want to generalize it from our language, they're called Hanu, Hanu which is people. Um, in reference to other indigenous people who are from other tribes who are not like similar, like Pueblo people, we usually refer to them as Moshome. Um, so we even have reference to um, our Black relatives, Spanish, rel- our Spanish, Latinx, um, Chicano relatives, and even um, our, you know, white relatives as well. So we do reference um, how people are across. Um, but I also think, it, you know, those th- those terms were introduced, of course, through like colonization and interacting with different communities or different um, different folks. I know. I um, always think it's interesting how different languages have different terms for certain people. Like um, in Hawaii, I saw a thread, I think it was on Twitter, about different languages, how they kind of talk about foreigners. And so like in Hawaii, we have haole. Um, is the word that we term. And there is just like a bunch of different other indigenous Indian peoples and they contributed to that thread of different languages of the same term. And it was like, it's just amazing how language, sometimes it's, it connects. I mean, it does connect us all, but even in different languages, some of the spelling or pronunciations or how, yeah, how you say those words, it's, sounds so similar even though it's like a completely different culture and language Mm -hmm. it's like mind-blowing yeah I I agree I agree um I know that a lot of um the language families here in the southwest sound sometimes similar to each other as well but I think this new resurgence of um having these discussions are actually taking place on multiple like social media platforms. I think two weeks ago I saw um, some um, rangers, I think they were like worked with um, like within the national park systems, like forest rangers talking about appropriate terminology and, you know, um, and how you refer to um Pueblo people or Hanu people or Tiwa territory or things of that nature. So these discussions are actually taking place. And honestly, didn't even realize like, like this was, you know, such a political thing growing up. I just kind of, you kind of just learn these terms as a child interchangeably, right? And then you kind of grow up finding out that there's this whole historical content behind every layer of it. Oh my gosh. I love that you bring that up because... Like, me, myself, growing up, yeah, I, they're just terminology that, you know, you just hear, you grow up with, you don't really think about. And then when you step into this realm or new level of knowing when you get older or maybe other people learn it when they're a little bit younger, um, it's kind of like an epiphany and so mind-blowing because you're just like, oh, my gosh, like, I've been using these words or these terms for so long and I didn't really know and now like I really need to educate myself and re-empower me but also have these conversations with other community members or people to kind of shed light on that information as well and I believe that too like even in Hawaii um, slowly but surely I see the resurgence of our native tongue of Olalo Hawaii and um, you know it was almost lost because of our people dying from disease and whatnot. And there was a small group of people who, you know, kept the language alive. And I feel like for a while it kind of seemed stagnant, but nowadays there's a lot more native speakers and you can see like slowly in parks and stuff like that, signs are changing um, or even within the schools, the signage is changing. And I, I feel like that's slowly shifting the narrative too, because even when I travel, um, I see more um, assertion and space and um, native peoples being hired to kind of shift that, 
narrative of, hey, this place is native and indigenous and there's these people that were here before you guys that we we need to pay respect to. Or even in talks and panel discussions, I've been seeing a lot more of land recognition, which mm -hmm. I love to see it. And I hope that it just keeps continuing to grow and grow and grow. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. This past um, February, I think it's um, the, I'll have to look up the organization, the Department of Arts and Culture, where you can actually download a toolkit on land acknowledgement practices. So I was part of a kind of thought partner collective that came together in February to talk about um, what does land acknowledgement really mean? And how do you move beyond land acknowledgement um, through action-based um, action? Like, what actions can your organization take? Um, I think for more other organizations, it, it, it you know, land acknowledgement is just the beginning. I think people are talking about repatriation of, of, um, of land spaces and waters, you know, there's the hashtag land back and what that really means. So I think there's multiple ways to like think about those things as well. But I agree. I I think it's pretty amazing that these land acknowledgements are taking place, but I do hope that the individuals who are doing the land acknowledgements move, that it's just not a checkoff box. It, it's, it's much more than that. And there's much more healing and um, that needs to take place as well as action in terms of what does it really mean to move Indigenous people to the front? Um, what does it really mean to move beyond like consultation to have Indigenous people have autonomy over um, what is happening to our lands, waters? And, and not just that, but just so many things in the world because there's been so many things done to us um, without even our acknowledging our presence. And I think that um, this is just the beginning of um, starting to take those, to take our like self-determination self back, um, you know, to keep moving it forward for sure. Yes, I believe that too. Um I have been working with Planned Parenthood and even though at first when they asked me to work with them, I was kind of like sketchy because, you know, just based off of their own history, they have, you know, a history of eugenics and, you know, white imperialism and stuff like that. But um, that's one organization that I've kind of seen from working with them. They've actually been working with Indigenous and Native peoples or BIPOC people and putting forth the work, not only doing minimal of like, you know, like a land acknowledgement, but actually um, hiring Native and BIPOC people to be in their organization and being cognizant of how are they like utilizing them? Like they don't want to overexert themselves, overexert um, the BIPOC people. Like, I feel like a lot of organizations, too, they'll hire, like, Native, Indigenous, BIPOC people, and then it'll be, like, those people do so much work, you know what I mean? And they're not cognizant of it. But that's something that I really appreciate with uh, Planned Parenthood from what I see. And I hope that more organizations do that, too, and kind of, you know, doing reparations and trying to make the, their company um, really live up to their different visions and missions mm -hmm. and who they're serving, especially. Okay, so <laughs> um, can you share with us a story of, yeah, from where you're from and how it's helped you on this path of where you are today in the work that you do? Yeah, I think... You know, that, that question, I was trying to think of, like, how do I answer that question? Yeah, it's a pretty heavy question. So just whatever comes to you. <laughs> um, there's so many influences um, who have contributed to my journey and where I am now. But I think if I'm going back and reminding myself, I, I just want to acknowledge that 
I did not like school growing up. I was a whole, like, I guess, quote unquote, a horrible at risk student. So um, education was not always something that I thought like I was going to pursue or be a part of just because I felt like it was, I felt like the education system was so violent towards me growing up. Um, but I had two really strong influences um, in my life. Well, I had many strong influences, but two that really stand out all the time. One being my grandmother, um, who my maternal grandmother, who is um, no longer here. And also my father, um, who is also no longer here. I think those two individuals and my mom, my mom as well. But um, my father grew up in Oklahoma and he really experienced um, impoverished conditions. Um, I want to say impoverished conditions because I don't think he like I don't think he was like he was identified as poverty because he had family, he had culture, he had language, but he experienced impoverished conditions because you know he didn't um, he didn't always have um, like just basic. Um, what am I saying? Basic needs or, you know, shelter, food, um, things of that nature. And so for him, education was a form of, um, of empowerment to make sure that his children would be okay. Um, especially in this world, you know, in this complex world, this globalized world. Um, my grandmother, um, she actually, um, did not finish school. She ended up leaving school to take care of her family when she was middle school aged, probably seventh, eighth grade around there. I never really quite asked what age she was, but she was pretty young. And at the time her mom had passed away. So she left school to take care of her father and her younger um, siblings and to take care of the home. So for her, she never, you know, had that opportunity to go to high school or even, you know, even the idea of beyond high school. But for her, she also felt like she wanted, you know, her grandchildren or her children to engage in school um, for the fact that they would be able to navigate this world. And, you know, she navigated it, but it was not without like, um, without, you know, without struggle or without her being resilient. And she was trilingual. She spoke three languages. She spoke Harris, Spanish, and English. Um, she worked in O-Town, which is kind of prominent for her time as a caretaker and a seamstress for a, for a prominent, like, Spanish or wealthy Spanish family. And um, she, you know, was part of the labor force the whole time until, you know, she retired. So I think those two individuals, for me, that was my motivation to um, go to college and my mom, you know, my mom and dad complicated history, but they were separated. They were divorced. So my mom actually raised us on her own and she was part of the labor force. She worked, you know, maybe 12 plus hours a day just to provide, you know, a roof and, and food on the table and so <laughs> here's Daphne, you know, I, I was a kind of a crazy child, wild teenager, but I ended up having, getting pregnant when I was 17 and had my daughter by the time I was 18. And so even though my family was incredibly, um, I think they were more so hurt because they were worried about, they were more so concerned because of the hard, maybe not hardships the right way, but maybe that things were going to be um, harder in my life being a young mother. Um, and that they had wanted me to not take on that type of responsibility early on in my life. But they also instilled that um, being a mother, you know, you do have a lot of responsibilities, not just providing for a child, but also growing, um, raising a child in um, a Thamaya um, worldview and that responsibility and what it looks like. And so when I was pregnant, my grandma actually sat me down <laughs> and talked about 
my role as a woman here in the community, raising a child and what that meant. Um, and one thing she did tell me is she, you know, I, I think this sounds kind of harsh in, in English, but she was like, I don't want to hear you complain. Like, I don't want to hear you complain about being a mother because, you know, this is something that you chose or something that you knew. <laughs> and, and you know, your child's going to bring so much blessings to you and it's going to require a lot of your time, patience and sacrifice. And, and so from there, um, I spent most of my pregnancy with my grandmother and even postpartum with my grandmother. So I learned quite a few things during that time. Um, living and being with my grandmother, but she reminded me of all the stories of um, matriarchs, public matriarchs um, in our community and the roles that we we kind of take on as mothers or women or aunties or sisters. And it's very significant to everything that we do. And so um, I just, you know, like I said, my grandmother... Um, she just continued to work and provide for her family. So I knew I couldn't just give up and and just not continue on with my life. And also, you know, my dad and my mom were at the back of my mind in terms of my mom and how hard she worked and my dad and the things that he experienced in Oklahoma. But um, more so, like I said, those are the three individuals that really influenced my path. Um, and again, it, I think at the beginning, it was just for survival. And it sounds really weird, but it was mostly like survival of getting education to get like a quote unquote good job, right? And um, so you could provide for your family. But the more I, I kind of went on through schooling, I just thought, you know what, this is, yes, it's also survival, but it's also turned into be much more than just survival. It turned into be like... um of movement within myself to unlearn the harms of this crazy system. Um, and also how do, how do we share, how do I share that? How do I share what I'm learning with my community? Because I was a first gen student. So how do I share, um, you know, this information um, with my family and community, but in a way that is not pretentious, right? in a way where you're not pretentious, you're not causing harm, but you're also you're also exchanging in dialogue or ideas with your community when you share what you know and learn. And then they kind of come back and share their life, their experiences, and it kind of all meshes together. And I think the most part was, how do I contribute um, to my community? How do I strengthen my community? Um, through this platform of education. And, and sometimes it's very tricky because edu Western education is rooted in so much colonialism that sometimes not everything you learn from that is going to transfer to your community. And so I think that's where the um, thought process or the intellectual labor for us really takes in. And how do we really do that in a good way? Oh my gosh, mahalo for sharing all that. You just had so much Ike bombs, Ike's knowledge in my language. Um, and mahalo for sharing about how, you know, it is a tricky space to navigate between education and your community because I feel like I'm on the same page as you and that's how I feel like we connected back in Aotearoa is, is the fact that, you know, I'm not – Sometimes when I think about education and Western education, to me, it kind of feels dirty in a way. It is starch deep in patriarchy and imperialism and all the things that I don't personally like as a Native woman, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, I feel like for me as well, it's evolved into something bigger than yeah, so I just dissect all these different things that, you know, I need to be walking in both these realms of, you know, with community, but also utilizing the colonizer's tools in a way to dismantle certain things and make it better for my community to understand in ways that I feel like I didn't, wasn't able to understand. Um before we started recording, we were talking about um, 
how yeah like nowadays i feel like there are more indigenous and native peoples and bipoc people making nonprofits and different industries in order to employ um our own people and maybe step away from the whole having to go through academics as the only way of achieving some kind of quote unquote hierarchy um in modern day society and um I don't know. I just like thinking about that because I believe that it is happening that a lot of our people are just stepping up to the plate and making our own futures and developing our own ways of um working in this capitalistic, you know, crazy days society and it's been it's beautiful. Even that's what I love too is that even in the you know tough times of being indigenous and native like there's beauty in the struggle even if it's struggling i agree i agree with that that that's a beautiful that's a good way of um a really nice way of um kind of capturing everything um especially like you said there's beautifulness and struggle cuz i think it teaches us um, things that our ancestors or even like two generations before us kind of went through in terms of figuring out navigating spaces, how to live in this world and maintain um, our core values or who we are as people and what does that really mean? And so um, I'm constantly having conversations um, among my daughter and my mom and my sister about what does it mean to be a public woman today and you know, what is it, you know, because I don't, sometimes I feel like what I'm doing is not completely where I need to be. Like, I kind of feel lost sometimes, but then I go and I get grounded with my family and I'm like, okay, I'm where I need to be. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm where I'm at. I'm where I'm, where I'm supposed to be. Um, but I think not getting lost. Um, I think we're, I think mostly when I feel lost, it's because I feel like I might be deterring away from my values as a as an indigenous or public woman or person um and i don't ever want to steer too far from that so i think that's me going back to figure out how do i reground myself and how do i remind myself of um why i am in certain areas or working in certain areas yes i feel that i feel that all the time that i constantly also i have conversations with my mom or community but conversations in my own head about hey what's going on here (laughs) that I always need to recheck in because if I don't then I feel like then things kind of feel crazy around me um so how did you you kind of talked about it already but how did you come into this role as an educator I mean Yes, your ohana, your family was a big, you know, pushing factor. But like, you know, now as you progress um, in higher education, I guess. Yeah. So after I graduated, I I graduated from the University of New Mexico in 2008. um, And that was right around when the recession hit. Right. And I was actually looking for a job. I went to work retail again. I was so upset, but, you know, I was working in retail and I was applying for a couple different positions and I happened to be hired with um, the Santa Ana Pueblo Tribal um, Education Department. And so my role there was an education liaison um, between the Pueblo and the public school public school systems. And so it was mainly to track um, the progress of our students and to ensure that they were having um, equitable opportunities in the public school and also to be like a community educator and educating parents on um, just like the system at large, like in terms of, um, I would say, um, just or let me stop educating the parents at large in the community on what the public school system was about in terms of um, regu- regulation, student achievement, um, assessments, 
um, you know, any type of any type of supports that the parents or community needed. And then also, it was also doing youth work, um, empowering, um, doing empowerment youth work with the students here and creating like expirational learning opportunities for them. Um, So just a multiple of of a lot of things that I was involved in. I worked with the tribe for six years. And during that time, um, I learned a great deal about the educational systems um, that are offered to our children through public school, charter school, BIE, um, BIE schooling or tribally controlled schooling. And also started learning more about the curriculum being offered and learning, mostly also learning that our students were still really struggling in school and they were experiencing a lot of the same things that I was experiencing in terms of um, lack of acknowledgement of like indigenous histories, um, lack of support and um, support when I mean like lack of support in terms of um, the fact that we were all kind of considered um, English development or um, like we didn't have like we weren't strong in English like we were still considered like um, you know um, English development learners um, also a lot of students being diagnosed with learning disabilities and I kind of had a little bit of experience of learning what that system looks like in terms of, you know, getting your student diagnosed, um, what does the educational plan for that student look like, how do parents advocate um, to get appropriate or adequate um, resources for their children. So there's like this whole huge policy, um, not just policy, but also just the way, the delivery of education to our students. Um, at the time, I actually was trying, I was actually um, trying or applied to law school and I wanted to study more educational policy. I ended up not going to law school and kind of taking a different path, but um, working with the tribe for seven years, um, learned about the whole education system and how broken it was for our people, but also learned, um, created really meaningful relationships with the children and youth here and they're so smart they're so intelligent and I think sometimes they just needed that mentoring or coaching on how do you navigate this system you know um, the system wasn't really intended for us to be successful all the time and just having those kind of reality discussions with our students and and youth and showing them a different way to approach it. And so to me, it was like such a enriching time to learn all of that, but also to really strengthen my relationships with parents, um, students, and they've known me my whole life and I've known them kind of their, you know, most of their lives as well. But um, so it was kind of unique um, to be working for your own people. It was challenging. It wasn't easy. But um, after I left the tribe, um, I had to take some time for myself to like kind of reflect and recalibrate where my journey was going to go. But in that in that time when I left, I remember people coming up to me in the community saying how much, you know, um, they missed me working for the tribe or how much they appreciated some of the work that I did. And now some of my students are young adults. <laughs> we get to have these kind of discussions together and I see them being a part of community movements. So it's really, really cool to kind of see that growth and be a part of them. And I think one thing when I left the tribe, what I told the students is even though I'm leaving, you know, working for the tribe, we're still kin, you know, we're, we're still Tamayama, you're still my relations. And if they ever needed anything that I would always be there because I'm part of this community and I'm not going to be going anywhere. But um, I left, you know, took on a couple of roles at different places after I left the tribe. But my last, I want to end it with my last employment. I was working for the New Mexico public education department as a um, education administrator 
And that was such a huge learning experience for me to understand how educational policy gets developed at the state level and how it gets delivered to um, school buildings and communities. And one of the most things that I worked on there was um, developing tribal consultation practices between the state of New Mexico and tribal governments. And that was actually a requirement of federal law through the Every Student Succeeds Act. And so I found myself in a very unique situation there. Um, You know, I'm a very strong proponent of um, educational sovereignty and having tribal control over our education systems. But I was working for the state. So it was it was a very sometimes conflicting experience for me to be in that position. But also I saw it as an opportunity to learn how the state agency operates and how it works and how information or policy gets transmitted through just not only the state, but the districts and the school buildings and so forth. And also to provide educational within the agency um, of my experience of working with tribes and, and school districts and Native students, and also making, making um, advocating for, for meaningful discussions and consultation and practices. And so not only that, but I got to meet um, a lot more people within the state who are working for their tribes, working for schools, who are really strong advocates for educational sovereignty. And I was able to, you know, not only work with these people individually, but also work with them collectively. And how do we, how do we um, affirm, you know, um, culturally responsive education practices for our students? And how do we communicate that to the state at large? Um, it wasn't always easy. It was very challenging. Um, I found myself like, kind of being like a diplomat kind of in a sense, like learning diplomatic tactics. Um, But it also brought me out of my shell to um, do more public engagement sessions, public speaking, um, research. Um, Yeah, it was just like a such a huge learning experience. And right now, um, I actually just like I said, I just left the state very recently um, for a different opportunity, it was more of a research-based opportunity to work with the American Indian Higher Education Consortium. So sharing about your dissertation, um, I love the fact that it touches upon all these different heavy topics that I re- can relate to. Can you share more about that? Yeah, so I am currently finishing up my dissertation um, I am a student at Arizona State University in the School of Social Transformation. Um, I was part of this public Indian doctoral cohort program that was actually in partnership with the Santa Fe Indian School Leadership Institute. So there's a whole history there. But my dissertation really focuses on, or my studies in my dissertation focuses on um, social justice education, Um, educational policy, and Indigenous education. Right now, the working title of my dissertation is Affirming the Educational Sovereignty of Santa Ana Pueblo um, Through the Intersections of Community-Based Education, Western Schooling, and Tribal Citizenship. So, yeah, that's a a lot. (laughs) Um, You know, what's um, really interesting is I attended um, WIPSI, which stands for the World Indigenous People Conference on Education. And the last conference I attended was actually in Hawaii. And I went to the... Oh, wait, maybe I attended Whipsy. Never mind. I think I attended Whipsy and not NISA. It's the same. Yeah. So correction. Yeah, so I had attended that I think it was two thousand ten though, but NASO might have been in Hawaii in two thousand twelve. Who I'm not quite sure, but I Yeah, so with- audience, if if I got any of those wrong, my bad. 
<laughs> well, that's the good thing is that there's like a lot of things happening, um, a lot of convenings happening of Indigenous folks. So um, if you can attend any of those those conventions or convenings, you know, that, that would be amazing. And hopefully we'll meet one day. But um, when I was at Whipsy, I attended a presentation that centered around canoe making and the process of it, of it being like such a family oriented, um, oriented process and approach. And so that kind of made me think about like my studies, my dissertation. So you guys, you know, it actually influenced my thinking um, and, and what to kind of work on for this dissertation. So anyhow, going back, we're all subjected to Western education. You know, that's the reality of that we live in. Um, there are laws that are on the books that require us to send our students to school. Um, you know, for Indigenous people, um, Western schooling has been violent since it's um, since the beginning in terms of Indian boarding schools. Um, right here in New Mexico, a lot of the day schools that were established within our communities and so forth. So um, it's still pretty much there. You know, there are laws that require children to be in school. So um, you can't get away from that. The other part of education that I really didn't acknowledge in my life until recently in my adult life was community-based education or place-based education. The education that takes place within your community. The education that takes place within your family. And this is one of the um, things I always used to say to the Native students who I worked with was that you are so intelligent. Like you, you know, within our community, we are learning so much in our lives and it's not even written down. You know, I come from a very oral based community where we don't have a written constitution. We don't have anything quite written. We don't have a written language. We don't have anything written down. So all of that learning is scaffolded throughout our life and we maintain it. We maintain it. And, um, you know, when when you're in ceremony or when ceremonies are taking place, when you're preparing all of that information of what you what, you know, your grandparents or your family have taught you, what you observed, what you feel through like, you know, your sensories, that all kind of kicks in. And it just becomes this innate thing of, okay, well, if this is going to happen, this is what I have to do. This is coming up. This is how we have to prepare. Um, And so it's all very innate in us, um, community-based education. So for me, it was like, it was like growing up the value, or at least what I saw in society. When I say society, I don't mean like our, our community, but in society, the value was always placed on Western education. And to, a, and to a certain degree, like even our people place a value on Western education, right? Because it's somewhat tangible. Like you get a, a certificate, you get a degree, you get this um, confirmation that you have this level of intellect, right? But within our communities, um, it's it's different. Um, it's not only just learning, you know, um, our ancestral ways or the ways of our, our life ways, but there are confirmations, but they are not like elevated to the same as Western education. And I always wondered why, mm-hmm. you know, they both contribute a lot to who we are as beings, especially now. And I thought there has to be some type of healthy balance between the two. You can't like just be all 100% in Western education and not value community education because then there's this off balance. But then, of course, um, I would love to all be in <laughs> community-based education, but the, the reality is is we lived in a complex world. We live in a globalized world. We live in a capitalistic world. And, you know, you do have to have some knowledge of Western education, especially in tribal affairs when you're making negotiations on behalf of the community, you have to have, you know, that type of knowledge um, to kind of move forward sometimes, that type of expertise. And so that's why I know a lot of tribes are sending, you know, do, you know, um, encourage their kids to go to college or 
go to school. So there's that. Another part of it is tribal citizenship. So this is a hard term for me. Tribal citizenship, um, you know, can be a, a very like Western concept. Um, here in my community, we don't really use the term tribal citizenship. They use the term tribal member. And there's an argument for both, right? But I think for me, um, when I'm talking about tribal citizenship, I'm talking about, you know, how, how, do, how do we define who belongs to community? Um, to talk through the complexities of tribal enrollment, um, you know, that comes a lot with blood quantum, which is a very Western construct, and then belonging, belonging, um, kinship systems, what does that entail? So basically looking at the three of these things, because I believe they intersect with each other. Um, and mostly because, you know, we are an oral community. Um, we are an oral based community. And to have an understanding of belonging, you have to have a sense of community based education. Um, to be a contributing um, Hanu or contributing tribal member, or tribal citizenship, you know, you do have to have some some form of Western education to ensure like our survival in this world. Unfortunately, you know, so I don't know. I I, I don't know if that, those are all right things, but those are things that are intriguing my thought process. Um, I've been thinking about them for such a long time. And even thinking about them through COVID more so. So um, it's been really amazing to do the research. I'm actually gearing up to be doing um, the interviews pretty soon um, within my community. I've talked to a few people. And so um, it's all going to be, um, like I said, just a, just another um, storytelling of a point in time for our people. And throughout this whole dissertation process, not just the concept, but also thinking about how do you ethically do um, research within Indigenous communities or public communities. And so that was something that was very um, scary for me. Um, First off, because um, I don't want to cause any harm, right? We all know research is like a very dirty not great word in our community and we all know why. Um, so I didn't want to be that, but I also felt like it is the time, like, you know, it is the time to have indigenous research researchers in our communities doing work on behalf of our communities. Like I'm tired, you know, of seeing our communities having to hire so-called outside expertise, outsource our knowledge, um, developers. Right. Um, so I think it is important to have indigenous researchers. It's like, it's kind of like this weird, um, you know, balance between the two. So in doing, in doing my dissertation research, I've presented on this a handful of times and presented on this at NISA is how do you develop, you know, a Pueblo doctoral study? What does that look like for me? And I read, this amazing, you know, as many Indigenous scholars read, Research is Ceremony by um, Sean Wilson. It's an amazing book. Please read it if you can. But I thought, what does research look like for me? And how does that associate with ceremony? I will tell you, I went to my mom's house. I cried. <laughs> I cried because I didn't want to I, I wanted to do the research. I just was very reluctant to present before tribal council, you know, because tribal council for me is made up of men. There's no women who, um, women are prohibited for, prohibited from representing on tribal council. So that's like a whole nother discussion of, um, patriotism or patriarchy and, um, patriarchy, harmful patriarchy. But, um, anyhow, I just didn't want to present before tribal council. I had this innate fear I talked to my mom. I cried. I was like, I don't want to do this, but I have to do this. What is it? What, how am I going to, how am I going to do this? You know, I don't want to be shut down. Um, and so she, you know, started telling me 
about things that I've accomplished in my life. Not things that I've accomplished in a Western way, but things I've accomplished in a ceremonial way in my community. And she talked about that it wasn't just me doing it by myself. It was my family who supported me through the ceremonial practice. It was the community um, people that came collectively to be there for me um, in these times. So she's like, you already kind of know the answer, Daphne. (laughs) And I was like sitting there like, okay, you know, I came home and I like was looking at my bookshelf and I published a, I used to publish poems in high school through the, um, through like a high school publication. And I saw the little book sitting there and I pulled it up and I actually wrote a poem about participating in one of our our dances here in the community. It's a buffalo dance. Um, it's a very significant dance for um, the community at large, but um, also the young women or women who are taking place in that. And I wrote a poem about it and I thought, oh my God, this is what my mom's talking about. Okay. So I kind of started jotting down ideas and I went back to my mom's house the following day and I told her, the answer for this is um, if research is to be ceremony for me and ceremony in Tamaya Me ways is to engage with our parents first, I'm coming to you as a mom that I need your support in this whole like dissertation in Denver. And what that looks like for me is for you to be present um, when I have to go ask permission with to like the council or, or governor. And I have this idea that um, I need to talk to the governor about. So basically what that meant is I was asking my mom to come with me to our tribal leadership to ask them to help me through this process. And so that's pretty, you know, that's pretty much um, what she did. She came with me to my meeting with the tribal governor, told the governor that I was her daughter um, and that this is what I've been, I've been studying for some time and that I need help, you know, and that she would appreciate as my mother, um, the fact that he would help me. And that's literally like a tribal protocol when it comes to ceremony. Um, from there, the governor and I talked about recruiting um, the PhDs in my community. Um, you know, who are those PhDs? Um, they're different people. And so we recruited five individuals, one being um, a one person being from like a war chief society and a second being an indigenous researcher who works with like our tribal historical preservation office. Um, a third being a former governor, um, the fourth being a community, um, a council member, community member who also is an educator, and a, f- a fifth, which is a um, a woman who's a native language teacher. So those are the five individuals from my community who advise me on how to approach my dissertation. And they are the PhDs in my community. They may not have the, like, official accreditations or titles or degrees, but they, for me, are the vetting system of if I'm doing this correctly. So um, anyhow, my mom was with me when I recruited these individuals, asked them to help me, um, you know, how my mom is with us when we come together as a collective to discuss like my next steps in my dissertation process. And that's literally my mom's role, um, not only as my mother here um, in the community, but also I made it her role as part of my research as well, um, because I really wanted it to be reflective of who I was as a public person and the protocols that need to take place. Um, Let me just, I also want to say, I don't, I feel very bashful in saying this, but I feel like I need to, um, not only was I a first gen graduate, I'm in college student or graduate, but I'm also um, will be the first PhD in my community. Wow. So um, in saying that, it's not because (laughs) 
I want any accolades or anything like that. It's because this is uncharted territory for me. This is uncharted territory for my community and family. And and it's been difficult. The The whole doctoral program dissertation process for me has been very difficult because, you know, I don't, I never saw myself being like navigating higher ed like this. I didn't really see anyone in my family navigating higher ed. And now being at this level, um, I've never really, like, I don't have, like, an arm length of experience to pull from someone in my community of what this looks or should feel like. So this is all brand new uncharted territory. Um, And that's why I share it is because I have struggled with imposter syndrome so much during this whole journey and I think I've sometimes made really like maybe some of the mistakes some rookie mistakes or mistakes and how to um, navigate this whole process is because I really don't know right I really don't know and so I I've um you know rely on a few colleagues or friends or mentors to really help me but um, sometimes it feels really heavy to carry that for myself first, um, for my family, but more so like the realization that this is not just going to mean something to me. It's going to mean something for my community. And I, you know, will always, like I said, be there to support anyone in my community who wants to take this journey. And I hope that whatever I learn you know, will benefit them in some way that it may um, not be an intense experience, like such an emotional, intense experience um, that they may, you know. um, But again, everyone has that journey, right? Yes, mahalo for sharing. I'm so proud of you. And that's amazing that, you know, you're taking on this path for the betterment of your community and hopefully – more that come up and is trying to get a doctorate can you can be that mentor which I am such a strong advocate for in our communities I I really do believe that mentorship is everything especially when you're going through hard times um and like these entities of higher education and other realms um so wrapping it up we kind of ran out of time but I loved everything that you shared or we like at Native Stories always like to kind of throw out action item for our listeners. Um, so do you have an action item for them and how can they get involved or maybe like a little message for your community for them to get involved as well? You know, um, the one of the action items that I do have is, you know, um, reach out, reach out to community-based organizations or tribal-based organizations um, right now, I'm currently involved in the Resilience Organization. They just completed, or we're in the process of completing um, our fall workshops under Place, which is um, which is Place, Land, Arts, Culture, and Ecology. I'm sorry, not Place, People, Land, Arts, Culture, and Ecology. And you can find them um, on social media at resilience with the Z um, art experience. And so we're working with them and doing like kind of community, community workshops, community building, um, kind of similar, like community um, innovations. Also, I'm not as involved, but I do support local organizations like the three sisters collective here in New Mexico or here in um um, Tewa Territory up in Santa Fe, um, Pueblo Action Alliance, which is in Tewa Territory, which is in um, Albuquerque, New Mexico. So I think just getting involved, um, you don't have to be like really um, taking the leadership role, but even just showing up and being involved or or having dialogue, or even if you're leading the workshop, just be a part of community. I think that's just the action. Um, even if you know, um, you're still learning, you know, you'll, you'll get to a point where you'll create really strong relationships with individuals and we're, we're going to need each other. You know, there are times where, 
people call me and say, well, Daphne, I don't know how to do like such and such. Can you provide me some information or resources? I'm like, yeah, sure. Here it is. Take my take my um, previous work, adjust it to how you need to. This is what we're here for. You know, there are times where I'm learning about how to, um, you know, be a seed or a steward of, of seeds, like how to save seeds. Like I, you know, unfortunately, you know, that's not like my strong suit, but I have a handful of colleagues I can, or friends or kin that I can call and say, Hey, you know what? Um, how do I, how do I store my seeds or where do I store my seeds or how do I do this? Um, or, you know what? I saw something on the news about, um, Chaco Canyon and I don't really know how to get involved in protecting like what can I do so I think just being part of community and any and any leader in any layer we all have something contribute to contribute we all have talents um that's why we're a community um not everyone's gonna have um all the knowledge we all have shared knowledge to offer each other so that would be my call to action is to be a part of community um show up and, you know, um, yeah, be a part of community, show up and, you know, I'm, I'm, the community will, will, um, the community will be there for you, right. And during your hard times and they will understand, you know, if you cannot be there or, or if you can, I think that's part of it. Mahalo for that. Um, and if anybody wants to get in contact with you, um, how can they do so? Or do you have any social networks of your own that you want to share? Um, yeah, so you're welcome to reach out to me on Instagram. I'm at Daph Little Bear, which is D-A-P-H-L-I-L-B-E-A-R. Um, my name's really long. So, um, people joke and say that's my rap name, <laughs> but anyways, um, so that's the same handle I have at Twitter as well. Um, Daph Little Bear. So you're welcome to reach out to me on those platforms. Um, also you can contact me directly at, um, D Little Bear, um, at ahec.org. Um, also D, um, little b at asu.edu so i believe those will be shared out i'm always willing to support or be involved um in any type of way that i can support you um so yeah thank you for having me and yeah so i'm just at all i love this whole conversation and our episode but mahalo nui for sharing your mo'olelo or your story with us here on native stories and if you all want to further connect with us please do we're looking for more stories and podcast host collabs um you can download our mobile app for place-based stories and walking tours and you can listen to us on all streaming podcast outlets and Facebook, just search Native Stories. We are on Instagram. Our handle is a little different. Um, it is our O-U-R Native Stories with our in the beginning of it. And that's where we share our daily and Native and Indigenous kind mail or things. So please make sure to share Native Stories to all your Ohana and friends. And here at Native Stories, we pride ourselves in being your resource and the more you share, the more of our Native and Indigenous knowledges and truths are told. So sending plenty of aloha to you all out there and mahalo for tuning in. Peace. Bye.